Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you today by Source by Sound Agriculture. I'm Julia Gerlach. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer Podcast, we caught up with no-tiller Jim Leverage of Sparta, Wisconsin. Jim is No-Till Farmer's 2022 Conservation Ag Operator Fellow. I've been here since I uh, grew up on this farm. The farm was established in 1864, and my grandfather's uh, were pretty much, they moved here from New York and they were in the fruit business and dairy business. Oh. So this farm originally was a strawberry, they had about 25 acres of strawberries and they had 30 dairy cows and they had about, um, oh, they had grapes and they also had apple and orchard in oh. the back part of the farm. But the trees are all deceased now. So we are actually, um, some of the grapes are still there and we're kind of starting another vineyard. My daughter is helping do that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And wow. um, so through the years, my uh, my great-grandfather was quite involved locally here, setting up the Fruit Produce Co-op, which is now a corn and soybean and oh. dairy co-op. But uh, then my other grandfather was a uh, senator. So he he ran the farm on the side and he, he was in the state Senate for 28 years. And then from there, my father came back from World War II and started running the farm, And but he worked off the farm as well. So all of us have always uh, kind of had another occupation besides farming, except for the first two or three generations. Uh -huh. So we've always had two professional careers, I like to say. I think farming is a profession as well as mm -hmm. anybody else's. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So we did that and the farm was about 130 acres when I started and now it's uh, we've grown it to about a thousand acres and uh, we're pretty much corn and soybeans. Sometimes we have a little alfalfa mm -hmm. and uh, perennial ryegrass and sometimes we raise beef. Right now we don't have a beef herd but okay. I wouldn't doubt that we get back into the beef at some point just because um, it's just too much to handle for myself but if I have a son or daughter that comes back and works in the area and they can get involved, then we might have another cow herd. Sure. So. Oh, that's great. Well, and uh, you mentioned dairy, and I know that you have a dairy science degree. And yep. so was it a dairy at some point that yep. when you so were living when I was a, uh, growing up here, we had a, a herdsman. The guy worked for my father for 50 years, and oh, wow. he was... Um, he pretty much took care of all the cows and we did the crops and we had about 40 cows at that time when I, mm. uh, and then we kind of got out of the dairy industry probably 30 years ago and got into feeding cattle and raising a beef herd. Oh. And he stayed with us to do that. Oh. Um, but he was such a reliable, if we could uh, have the generation today be as reliable as George was, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be great because you oh. could, go away and you always were sure that George was here uh -huh. doing his job. And okay. It was pretty neat, actually. Yeah. yeah. And that he stayed 50. He started when he was 14 and worked till he was retired here. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So anyhow, because of the dairy part of it, um, I used to show a lot of dairy cattle mm -hmm. in 4-H and FFA. And then I went on to school at Madison for a... Uh, degree in dairy science and farm management. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Illinois for a master's in um, dairy science and farm management. Mm -hmm. Did a lot of computer stuff. Actually wrote a piece of software that was used by Land Lakes for probably 20 years that oh. balanced rations. Because oh, okay. I, I had cows on trial at the University of Illinois. I had 80 cows on an experiment that we were comparing 
electronic grain feeders to uh, total mixed rations. Oh, okay. And we were looking at the frequency of ration balancing and how that impacted the uh, productivity of, of the cows early in their lactation. Mm-hmm. And so then I came back here and for about six months I worked for a Doughboy Feed Company okay. and some consulting work and then I worked as a feed uh, nutritionist for them for a short period of time. I really liked the job. I had a hard time leaving it, but the extension agent job came open. And so I decided to go down that route because I had done a lot of work with Dr. Howard, who was a dairy nutritionist in Madison, came from Kansas, and Dr. Hutchins at the University of Illinois. He's still working. He's probably in his 80s, and he's still, (laughs) he's a very good extension dairyman. Oh, wow. And uh, I wrote some software for him in graduate school, the Illinois Ration Balancing Programs. Okay. So the reason I talk about that dairy background is it's very uh, similar to precision agriculture in that with DHI record testing for cows, where we were taking tests on cows every month Mm -hmm. um, and um, every cow, Basically, that's what we're getting into with precision ag is now we can farm every acre separately mm-hmm. and sure. and be a lot better managers and have um, a lot of information on a, uh, lots of data to make decisions instead of just short little experiments. And so, so the, the data that you were collecting on the cows, it was what you were giving them to feed and or to eat and then yeah, also the, their The data production? was twofold. It was all the milk information. Mm-hmm. So the DHI cooperatives, which are still in existence today, had all of the milk and protein and fat records on cows mm-hmm. and they predicted the total lactational production. Mm-hmm. And all that data is used to look at the genetics of cows oh. and the genetics of bulls. So all the bull studs use that data oh. to calculate out which which uh, families of genetics have the strongest oh. attributes in the dairy industry. Dang. And so I see the same thing happening in precision ag, but it's not as coordinated of an effort as mm-hmm. The other effort was done through universities and through the USDA when they started the DHIA cooperative. And I wish that they would do the same with for doing field crops. They could mm-hmm. use that same type of system that would not be biased by any seed company, company. or whatever. Mm-hmm. It would be more of a big database that would help um, to sort that out. Yeah, so that's interesting. There isn't anything like that for the crop. No, genetics. not really, except oh. that, you know, large cooperatives or companies like 360, they'll collect data on every farmer that they have and mm-hmm. use that kind of internally to mm-hmm. make their decisions. But yeah. um, no, I don't, not on a not on a U.S. basis yeah. is there. So you could be like um, comparing crop production of different hybrids across many environments and mm-hmm. then pick them out that way. Yeah. Just like they do with cows. And so you would, you're sort of envisioning that looking at all the different hybrids that are out there, mm-hmm. look at how it's fed and what the soil type is and the moisture. And, and companies do that, but they don't do it in comparison with each other, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. So mm-hmm. that's why. Um, so the other thing that happened when I came back here, I was a dairy and livestock agent. So I got into yeah. that. And then our county farm here had actually a um, area where we could use 80 acres to do research on it. And so we did a lot of dairy production research with total mixed rations, but then we also did a lot of no-till research. And the no-till research was done with Paul Carter, who's an agronomist at Pioneer now. But back in the day, back when I was doing that, back in the um, 
late 80s, early 90s, he was working for the University of Wisconsin Extension Service, and he was doing a lot of work on no-till corn production. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that initial work was done here at this county farm. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And um, so, and then it wasn't far after that that I started um, going into no-till. Okay. And so you <clears throat> sort of were introduced to the no-till concept through him? Somewhat through the university extension, yeah. And mm -hmm. then I... Um, there's a farmer that was my landlord who I've worked with now to purchase his farms, and he still works with me, and he's he no-tilled way back. Oh, okay. And there's a couple other farmers I knew that no-tilled. Uh-huh, okay. Um, and so those guys were the kind of the pioneers, and they, they kind of went in and out of no-till a little bit, but, you know, ended up being 100%. Oh, okay. And so um, we learned a lot from them, and, mm -hmm. you know, there's always this feeling when you go into no-till that oh, I'm missing something, that you know I might be mm -hmm. not getting the full yield. Um, I don't really think so. Uh, it seems to um, just get better. Uh -huh. I and see. I've, I've uh, been talking a little bit about looking into that with my daughter, who's a, mm -hmm. a soil scientist that's finishing her PhD at Minnesota mm -hmm. and doing a lot of precision ag. But I said, we ought to, with our guidance systems now, we ought to probably take a few 40-foot strips in our fields and go back to some conventional types of, um, not conventional, but uh, strip till or some type of tillage mm -hmm. um, to see how it compares to our no-till. Mm -hmm. It would be a very interesting thing to do. We could control that environment now with the steering systems we have now. It'd be very easy to uh -huh. lay those different systems in and sure. not goof them up. Right, right. So. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. And so... Uh, you're working for extension and then you came back to the farm was your you were farming with your dad at the time yeah so or? when I came back to do the extension work um, I wanted to farm but he thought maybe it'd be best if I got employed and he was uh -huh. right uh -huh. uh, because it wasn't enough here to do it I see so we built the farm on the side sure. and kept farming and uh -huh. building the facilities here um, so that we could have uh, you know continue to grow our acres and yeah we do a lot of uh, applied research on the farm now that we have, uh, we've done for years when I was working at the university, I'd do a lot of trials with uh, Dr. Bundy, who was a soil scientist there and Dr. Wilkowski. And so some of those trials we actually did on this farm oh, okay. as well, uh -huh. as well as the other places. Then the last, uh, so I was in the uh, county office for 17 years and I did um, moved into the crop research. And so I had a lot of crop plots, no-till, um, Roundup Ready uh, technologies all came in. We mm -hmm. did a lot of, and we did a lot of variety and hybrid tests there. Mm -hmm. um, and we had uh, a no-till farmer group. So what we would do with that group is we would set up these trials and then we'd have field days in the summer. And in the, in the winter, we'd take the results and we'd have a crop, two or three crop days. And then we'd bring in specialists to talk Mm -hmm. on those uh, those events. So kind of a mini uh, Frank Lesseter type thing <laughs> uh <-huh>. yeah. <laughs> on a county base. And we did it, ended up being several counties usually mm, that we'd okay. work two or three counties around the area. Uh -huh. So from all that research stuff I was doing, I ended up going into on-farm research at the university where I, it was mostly a lot of nutrient and uh, manure management type research mm -hmm. where we raised money and I worked with a couple larger farms in Wisconsin 
to look at their manure separation and mm-hmm. um, application costs, stuff like that. And so I did that for the last 18 years. And then I retired a few years ago and started just farming full time. Yeah. And then it's not really about no-till, but I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about the manure separation work that you did. Okay, and, so and- we did a lot of manure separation work to evaluate the cost of different types of processes like okay. Larson Acres is south of Madison. They're an excellent farm, do a lot of good cooperation with the university, even in dairy research and crop research. Okay. And um, that's probably a three to 4,000 cow dairy now. Uh-huh. So what we did there is we did a lot of experiments looking at how much it cost them to move manure farther away. Sure. And then how much it was, uh, we did a lot of sampling. We sampled the manure every two hours when they were hauling it, or two or four hours. And then we would keep track of this analysis and we would keep track of where the tractor was in the field with GPS. Uh So then we could build a nutrient application map based on the actual samples. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, Uh so we found that the samples vary tremendously in large lagoons, which Uh we would have expected. Yeah. So I think there's a lot more work that could be done with farmers um, to help them to uh, better manage those nutrients. I think our nutrient management laws in Wisconsin actually uh, inhibit the ability to manage nutrients because we force farmers to apply all their manure if they're a CAFO Mm -hmm. um, in the spring, in the fall. Mm -hmm. And there'd be, so example here, I'm farming uh, 12 or 13 little dairies that had 30 to 50 cows on them in my cropland. None of those fields get manure anymore. So as a kid, you know, you'd go out here and you'd spread manure uh, daily, two, three loads. Sure. They'd get spread. The risk of them reaching any environmental problem was almost zero. Uh You'd hardly ever see runoff because manure was put on. It's a risk management thing. So now we put all the risk in two periods. Mm -hmm. So if we get a ton of rainfall in June, which we usually do, after they've applied all this manure that is high in nitrogen, Mm-hmm. We can have a lot of leaching or loss. Mm-hmm. And it's not the farmer's fault. It's because policy setters have mm-hmm. put together regulations that think they're doing the right thing, but they're not mm-hmm. really accomplishing what they'd like. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing a little work trying to get some people to listen mm-hmm. at, at the higher ups about it. They're so ingrained in their thinking process that they have to regulate. Yeah. Whereas I can, there's a dairy that has uh, two, three hundred cows just to the east of us here that they still haul like once a week. So okay. they have a little pit, uh-huh. and I don't think they have any manure management issues because mm-hmm. they're hauling that manure. And so what happens is when we force farmers to put on manure all one time, they go out and they, you know, and they wait till the snow's off, and they'll go out and they'll put uh, ten thousand gallons on an eighty-acre field, mm-hmm. the whole field, and mm-hmm. so. If you get a big rainfall or snow event and then it melts, mm-hmm. it's going to move. Mm-hmm. And it's because they're kind of forced into doing that. Sure. Whereas if they could come to me in the wintertime with a truckload a week or two mm-hmm. and just apply it to my farm in strips with I GPS, yeah. I would know where it is. I could adjust for it. We could just use some simple common sense technologies <laughs> to avoid the problems. Uh-huh. All these acres that I have now, that are in no-till, could be... They could have snow on them, I think, and you could apply manure mm-hmm. if you did it smart. Mm-hmm. You use mm-hmm. some common sense. But 
it's going to be a long ways to get back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the the smaller dairies don't have those regulations, no, right? They because don't. they're not CAFOs. Yep. Uh, so they can basically apply whenever they want. Yep. Um, but so you're saying these larger ones would, are they not allowed to haul off their property? Yeah, they're not allowed to haul anywhere without a manure management plan. Oh, I see. Rented or non-rented acres or whatever. So like here, when I was a kid, there was 120 acres and 30 cows. So there was about four acres per cow Mm -hmm. of spreadable Mm -hmm. land. Mm -hmm. Now there's um, a lot of these farms at one and a half to two acres to meet their nutrient management plan. They can because they're using 100% of their nutrients uh-huh. rather than buying any fertilizer. Uh-huh. Whereas here, we used to buy fertilizer in yeah. addition to our cow manure. I see. And so we were just way less risk averse, but uh-huh. people don't people don't understand that. Uh-huh. Huh. They don't have enough background in farming mm-hmm. or they just, they'll see a study that says manure runs off with snow, we can't do it. <laughs> but they don't think of all the other risks that they've created. Storing all this manure in huge volumes is a big risk, you mm-hmm. know, for leakage and things like that. So all these things they've created, they don't think about mm-hmm. the big picture yeah. in a decision. Right. And so my goal would be, if I could manage manure in this state, would be to get it on as many acres as possible. It seems like At a thinner idea. rate. Yeah. And um, so you would just, you'd apply it in like uh, our standing corn stalks. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you would apply it maybe 50 feet wide and then skip 50 or 100 feet and put another 50 feet on. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and so, therefore, if it moves at all when the snows melts, it's probably not going to move very far. Yeah. You right. see what I'm saying? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes good sense. So, that's kind of that's kind of how um, I look at farming as a whole is that uh-huh. we have to... We have to look at the big picture when we make a decision, not just a little picture at a time. Yeah, right. And how it impacts our whole management. (laughs) Last year I went to, there's a digester outside of Madison. Uh, Any chance the Larson farm is feeding into that, do you know? No, I don't think they are. Because they they, they, um, have a manure system that basically is a squeeze press. Oh, okay. And that takes out most of the solids. Mm -hmm. And then... uh, the liquid, more liquid fraction goes into it. Used to have an ultra filtration system and everything, but it was too expensive to operate. Okay. And we, for example, wanted to irrigate that manure. Uh-huh. Well, the DNR wouldn't even let us do a research trial, which was ridiculous <laughs> because we had the tea water, which was really high in the soluble nitrogen. So okay. when you apply manure with an injector in the spring, there's a quite a high percentage of soluble nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you squeeze it out and you take that soluble nitrogen and put it in a different lagoon and you can irrigate that in season, which they wanted to do, they mm-hmm. call it tea water, Yeah. then we can even increase the efficiency of the nitrogen. So normally if we take a nitrogen sample in manure, it's we take about a 35% credit of it. In other words, if it was 10, we, we figure there's three and a half of actual nitrogen available. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. because of the um, environmental losses or efficiency or how it's bound up in the soil. Mm-hmm. Well, we could have moved that up to 65% mm-hmm. and still got a crop response. So the, the problem is, is that the regulatory agency should stay out of the research business and let the universities do the research. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we couldn't even get a... They were so afraid of irrigating manure at the time, they wouldn't let us do the research. Interesting. Huh. Um, 
So there again is a pitfall in the system mm -hmm. that that would be an excellent way for them to squeeze out that liquid, use it in season <clears throat> when the crop uses it. So mm -hmm. there's not really much chance of loss at all. Sure. And then they would just buffer themselves from any uh, like residential areas or whatnot. You know, they wouldn't irrigate there. Sure. But that's a big problem in Dane County and a lot of these these counties is that the cities are moving in on the farms. Sure. And so then that becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so the farmers have difficulty in Dane County, for example, a lot of the land, because I worked in a watershed project there, the Pleasant Valley watershed. And there's a lot of good smaller dairies there yet that are under 200 cows that they struggle finding land to spread manure because people come out and buy up C CRP land and then mm. the, there's not land to spread on. Oh, okay. So mm -hmm. again, that's a good process, but on the other hand, maybe they ought to open up the CRP acres to apply nutrient. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of pitfalls in manure management. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So that's why you're seeing the farms move out of Wisconsin um, and move into mm -hmm. states like South Dakota where there's lots of vast mm -hmm. revenues of of cropland to put manure on. Yeah, and then so you talked about uh, getting the water out and then what what do they do with the solids? The solids then they take out and spread. The trouble with the okay. solids at that point, they're, they're good, but they actually tie up nitrogen. Mm -hmm. So they have to be careful where they put them. I see. So it's kind of like in no-till when your residue ties up your nitrogen, mm -hmm. um, the same thing can happen with manure solids. Mm -hmm. But they are you know, if you put them on in the right place in the rotation, they're excellent. Mm -hmm. yeah. Some farmers actually even spread those and then they'll spray liquid on them oh, okay. as a way to help bind that liquid up. So do you know the appropriate people to talk to about uh, well, changing been, some I've of these laws? I've been working on some of the policy setters, but it's, uh -huh. it's a tough thing, you know, that it really need to get to the state ag board to do that. And mm -hmm. uh, we're doing, we're having the same issue in the county right now. They have a climate change task force going. Mm -hmm. And I, I have difficulties with the whole climate. I know the climate changes, but I'm not sure that we're, um, there's a lot of research on both sides of the issue. Right. And so um, I'm concerned about that because like they had a, a green fire who's an environmental group actually was doing the, the work in the county, which they should have had a non-biased person mm -hmm. doing it. But anyhow, <clears throat> green fire was doing it. And they didn't even inventory what's going on in the county. They went back and said, well, we we could change the landscape in this county. Um, we could change the effects of water runoff on agricultural fields if we did this. But their study used, um, they looked at row crops on all the acres with conventional tillage. Uh -huh. And I said, you know, we haven't done that for 50 years on this in this county. And uh -huh. even then we had strips of alfalfa. So. Uh -huh. Your baseline data to show the public what's changing, it's ridiculous. Hmm. I said, our conservation service and our extension service and our farmers must have not done anything new for 50 years. <laughs> oh I said, actually, we have a high percentage of no-till acres <laughs> and a high percentage of conservation tillage. Uh -huh. And we've worked really hard to build conservation plans with farmers. So why didn't you go out and survey what's actually happening today right. and then compare it to what you're wanting to do, which is fine, add more no-till and add more cover crops and things like that. Mm -hmm. But to tell people that we're, our, our data goes from 50 years ago to, to now, that yeah. doesn't really help anybody. Uh -huh. It uh -huh. just puts it paints a bad picture. Absolutely, right. So that's what happens today, it seems like a lot, <laughs> is that um. we... 
we don't paint an honest picture mm -hmm. of what's happening before we say we're going to make a change. Mm -hmm. When you came back to the farm, it had been in conventional tillage. Well, actually, that. it was um, it was plowed and it was strips of alfalfa and hay, mm -hmm. and a lot of the highly erodible ground was pasture yet. Oh, okay. We did end up putting more of that into hay. We produced a lot of haylage and mm -hmm. silage for the cows. Mm -hmm. um, but we um, we were plowing, I remember, as a kid, I can remember plowing. And 1976, we had the drought. Oh, okay. And then we had one in 88. But in 76, we had a drought. We couldn't get the plow in the ground. Mm -hmm. And because my dad used to go do a lot of pheasant hunting out west, I used to go with him, mm -hmm. we noticed they were chisel plowing out there. Oh, okay. So we started chisel plowing here in 76. Mm -hmm. Everybody, that was new. Nobody had done that here. Okay. The other thing my father did back when he came back from the war is he um, he put in terraces and strip crops and oh. he was very, very much conservation minded. I see. And so he had, and then we started chisel plowing everything. And then I guess it was probably in about 1980-ish, I think I bought the no-till Yetter Caddy that I still run today. Okay. Mm -hmm. to put in front of the grain drill to, okay. to no-till soybeans. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. So that was really your introduction, was that, that caddy on the drill? Yeah, the introduction was in soybeans. Soybeans mm -hmm. seemed to be the first crop that mm -hmm. people would tackle. Yeah, and so you were doing that in seven and a half inch rows at the time? Actually, yeah, our drill seven. was six and two-thirds. Oh, yeah. six and two-thirds, okay. And um, trying to think of the gentleman down by Bloomington, was a farmer there that did a lot of work. Mm. He actually worked for a chemical company too, but I can't think of his name right now. Okay. But he was uh, kind of the innovator in getting no-till drilled beans going. Oh, oh, okay. Was it Jim Kinsellis? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's who it is. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, remind me, the drill was a, it was a tie drill. Ours was a tie drill. Uh -huh. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. When my dad bought the drill way back when I was probably in high school, the drill was. Uh, 15 foot drill, everybody thought that was too big. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So we mounted that drill. It was actually an end wheel drill with a three point hitch in it. Mm -hmm. So we put that on the caddy and started. I can remember farmers saying, What are you doing out there? Mm -hmm. You know, down by town, we have a field and they called it succotash. They, they just couldn't understand why we were out there planting soybeans in the corn stalks. Oh, okay. So there was a lot of. Uh, like harassment, friendly <laughs> harassment about why are you farming like that? <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> and that hasn't stopped, right? Oh, I no, mean, no. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so you did that for a while, and that, but then you did get a then actual... We, then we had a... What did we have for a planner? I think we had a small... We had a couple Alice Air Planners, mm. but then we bought a 333 no-till planner. Okay. From uh, actually, I got it down at Champaign, Illinois. It was brand new from uh, Wingfield Distributing. Okay. And uh, he's still at building uh, Harrow's. Oh. Um, he was an Alice Chalmers dealer down there, and I worked for him when I was in graduate school on weekends putting oh. together Hardy sprayers. Oh. Okay. So I bought that planter new from him. It was a four row, and then we made it into a 630. We were in four, mm. four row 38s at the time. Oh, okay. So then eventually that same planter I made into an eight row 20 inch planter. Oh, interesting. I put, I put a bar on the back so I could add Kinsey units to it. Uh -huh. So okay. a lot of my no-tilling here, I built my equipment. Interesting, okay. Know, because it was hard to access mm -hmm. stuff that was heavy enough to do the job. Okay. 
And so that was 15 foot wide? That, that was about 13.6 because okay. okay. it was 820 inch rows because we didn't have any, a big combine so we had to keep the, the head size small. Okay. So then we built our own head uh, mm. out of a case. Marion Culmer helped us because he was yeah. building the chains and sprockets for narrow row corn heads. Mm -hmm. And okay. um, so he helped us to modify the gearboxes. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but first I want to thank our sponsor, Source by Sound Agriculture. Today, nutrients cost more and can be hard to get when you need them. Thankfully, there's a better source of plant nutrition. It's your soil. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nitrogen and phosphorus already in your fields so you can add less while maintaining the yield you're counting on. It's such a solid backup plan, you'll wonder why Source wasn't the plan all along. Learn more about Source at www.sound.ag. And now back to the podcast. So what drove your decision to keep going narrower? Uh, my work, I did that research on the county farm. So I compared, had a 20 and a 30 inch planter. Okay. And the 20 and 30 inch planter would give us uh, between 5 and 10% more yield. Okay. Um, the university yields never, um, they matched it in corn silage, but not in grain. And I think it was because um, most of the research at universities was done with uh, Kinsey interplant planters, which are great planters. Mm -hmm. But um, when you're planting corn, they were driving on the rows. All the narrow, the 15-inch rows were being driven on mm -hmm. either by the tractor wheels or the planter wheels okay. before they were planted or or. Actually, they were driven on the wheels in the planter ran over those rows after they were planted because the row unit was out in front of the toolbar. So yeah. the universities would use those and I'd say, no, you should design a planter, a 20-inch planter that doesn't have wheel traffic interaction mm -hmm. because what they'd see in the university studies is always get higher yields in corn silage, mm -hmm. but not always in grain. And I always attributed that to the fact that the corn some years, not every year, was delayed in its emergence when it was planted in a row that got run over because hmm. of the compaction. Mm -hmm. And so did Marion. Mm -hmm. And so um, so basically what happened is some years when the compaction would occur, the crop would be behind. It would produce as much dry matter in the crop, but it just wouldn't transfer it from the stalk to the grain. Oh, okay. And so you would have uh, results that were... Some years it would be positive and some years not. But mm -hmm. all the corn silage trials were generally positive. Hmm. So that's what I attribute it to. So I tried to get all the corn specialists to plant their 30-inch rows with the 15-inch units and drive on them. Okay. And then plant some more 30-inch rows and see, but they never did. Oh. <laughs> to, to kind of prove the point that uh -huh. that might have caused the problem. Uh -huh. So instead of that, Marion contacted me when he found out I was doing narrow row research. I see. And we went around to all the Midwestern universities one summer. We went for a week, week and a half, and stopped and visited with every corn specialist and, and tried to get them to do research with us. Mm -hmm. And we ended up getting a lot of farmers with big planters to do the research. And because the big planters had less wheels on them, oh. there would be less interaction. I see. And so then they'd see that 7% yield increase to oh. narrow rows. And when you say a big planter, what, what well, were Well, back then about? it was a 12 row. But, okay. you know, they'd be 12 and 16 row planters. Uh -huh. You know, now they're much larger. But yeah. for the day, you know, the common planters were six row planters. Uh -huh. 
Gotcha. And those had a lot more wheels relative to each row. Sure. Whereas the big planters had, they had half as many rows being impacted by the wheels. Uh huh. Okay. Gotcha. So when we did that, we compiled all that data and we always had positive yield results. We had farmers helping us. Mm -hmm. So they'd fill up a They'd fill up a 12-row planter with interplants and plant one half of it as 15-inch rows and the other half as 30-inch rows, and then they'd do the yield comparisons. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. And then what were you doing for populations? Um, here at the county farm, I did lots of populations. So mm -hmm. I, I went from about 20,000 to 36,000, mm -hmm. and I found that the the 20-inch uh, rows really only needed to be planted about 5% higher population. So oh, really? at 30,000, it'd be 31.5 would be enough. Oh. So it was more the fact that the crop was being spread out to utilize the... And I think, you know, they always used to be really concerned about um, in-row spacing, mm -hmm. and they still mm -hmm. are, mm -hmm. to try and keep the crop as near to accurate as possible. But mm -hmm. in 20 inch rows, that's not as big a concern because instead of being five to seven inches apart, the plants are 10 to 12 inches apart. Okay. So if they're off an inch or two, they're not impacting each other. Oh, I see. So that's another benefit really to 15s or 20s is that the in row spacing, it's mm -hmm. important, you like it perfect, but it's not, plants don't impact each other as much. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, the other thing we found when we did that is that the finger meters, which are still an excellent corn meter, they still make them. Not many people use them, but I do. Yet on, on my Kinsey, I still get really good stands. And uh -huh. they turn slower when there's half as many uh, plants need to come out of the meter. So okay. what would happen is the meter would kick that seed across the finger and the meter would kick it into the seed tube and it would bounce back out oh so they had to change the design of the opening oh. in the meter okay kinsey worked with us on that <clears throat> so um a lot of little things that came up uh -huh. when we learned how to do it oh that's interesting yeah. And so when it would kick it out it would you would have skips you'd have a skip yeah. yeah oh interesting yeah. okay <laughs> so so i um i don't think excessively high populations are necessary mm -hmm. i think more the Fertilizer and disease aspects of things are where we have to focus. Mm -hmm. and, okay. and picking the right hybrids definitely is important. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and so talk about the hybrids a little because you said you do a lot of trials. Yeah, so here we always run uh, two to three, usually three replications and about 20 hybrids and about 15 bean varieties mm -hmm. every year we test. Mm -hmm. So it takes me an extra day of planting for corn and an extra day for soybeans. Mm -hmm to plant those hybrids and then once they're uh, they're in the chart it's real easy to harvest them mm -hmm. and um, <clears throat> we use a we make sure our yield monitors are calibrated correctly mm -hmm. and then we we harvest them that way mm -hmm. yeah and i forgot to ask you what is your planter that you're using now at kinsey well the one of the planters is a a kinsey i i had built a, a 16 row 20 planter on a john deere frame years ago oh. So I had those eight original Kinsey units uh -huh. that were, they're still selling them. I think they're a 3000 series row unit. Okay. And so they were kind of moving away from that unit, but there's still a demand for them. And um, <clears throat> then I bought eight more and I built a 16 row. Hmm. And I, that planner won the farm journal contest. I, and I built it because the ones on the market were 24 rows and they were very heavy. Oh. And they were hard to, 
you had to have a huge tractor to pull them. And mm -hmm. I pulled this 16 row with a 125 horse tractor. Oh, wow. Front assist tractor. So oh. I used that for many years. And then I um, upgraded. Now I have a, a Kinsey. I have my Kinsey that I took the units off of there and I built a 12 row that goes on a Yetter Caddy. Mm -hmm. And that. 12 row we use to plant any uh, wet areas in the field if we're afraid of having a big planter I see. getting stuck. Uh -huh, so okay. then the other planter is a 1245 case um, planter, which is an excellent planter. They're okay. both both really good planters. I think they both fit okay. well. Okay. I think all the planters out on the market today are pretty good. 1245? I mean, 1245 case is, um, is a uh, planter that's 24 rows wide, 20 inch, and, it, oh, and it's okay. a turntable planter, so it pivots in the middle. Oh, okay. And uh, it, it turns around just like a Kinsey planter does. Oh, gotcha. It's not a front fold, whereas most of your 30 inch planters are front fold planters. Mm. So the, the wings fold ahead. This okay. planter picks up in the middle and turns mm. for mm -hmm. end transport. Okay, <clears throat> gotcha. So they're, they're a little bit different in that the the case planter opener is quite a bit different than the Kinsey and the Deer mm. and the White and the new Fent. Mm -hmm. um, they all use like a 15 degree two disc together situation like this. And mm -hmm. the case has the offset oh, disc. Okay. So Why do you like that? I like that in wetter conditions. It, it creates less sidewall compaction. Mm -hmm. um, now the planter. So it wears the blades faster. Mm. So you don't get the life out of the disc openers. Okay. but to me, that doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, yeah, it's more money, but in no-till, you're going to expect that. Uh-huh, sure. You're going to wear out your planter faster just because of the, there's, the ground isn't loose mm -hmm. and soft, it's firm. Yep, that makes sense. So there's a lot more wear and tear on the planter. Mm -hmm. And then what else do you have on your, on your planter? What else? So what's really important on a no-till planter is, uh, I used to say the row cleaners, and now I'd actually say maybe guidance would be first, but oh, okay. row cleaners are really important to move the residue uh -huh. because of the uh, allelopathic effects of corn on corn, like corn is allergic to itself, the stalks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just getting, so I like the row cleaner to clean enough material out that the row um, depth wheel, uh, the gauge wheel is, there's it's running on clean um, soil okay. so that it's not bouncing. I see. So if you go turbo till a field and you turn up all the roots, balls, and you got all these stalks all over the place, mm -hmm. I don't see how you get the row unit to quit bouncing. I see. So now all these new precision technologies are available. To me, I think they probably work very well, but I don't know if they're necessary if you used guidance. Mm -hmm. I have never seen a good experiment. They haven't done one that mm -hmm. I've seen to compare if you actually put the planter in between the rows mm -hmm. and uh, plant mm -hmm. so that it's not fighting all of that um, residue mm -hmm. or the movement of it. I see. The row units. So a lot of good management with running a planter is just simply watching the row units out the back of the window oh. to make sure they're running flat. I see. They're not bouncing. Uh-huh. Okay. Because you could, you could have the best row unit meter in the world, but if it's bouncing, the seed is going to bounce in the seed tube and not end up where it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Except for now with the high speed meters and the high speed uh, seed drop, they've got all that built in. Mm, okay. So, and but they kind of had that built in in the Kinsey unit too, in the old um, 
meter because it had a belt in there at that time too that mm -hmm. carried the seed down okay and dropped it oh, okay. so the seed drop was way less in the old alice air units the seed disc was built right down into the opener so mm. the disc it the, it fell out of the unit maybe five six inches is all oh. the depth of i mean the amount of travel that the seed went uh-huh interesting yeah okay. so it's kind of interesting how all this stuff has evolved uh-huh yeah right and so <clears throat> I'd like to build a high-speed planner someday here in the near future and then see if it all those technologies really are effective or not mm -hmm. yeah right and so you are basically you're planting one year on one row and then yep. the next year you're shifting over 50, 10, inch, 10 inches 10 inches yep. okay and so that you avoid the the root balls, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm avoiding that. <clears throat> it's not so critical in soybeans. They don't, you know, they're not as big a problem. But I still do it. Okay. So I use the same guidance lines. Mm -hmm. Then I also apply my ammonia with those same guidance lines, so that I'm always ten inches off the the row uh, with okay. the ammonia because I put the ammonia on in forty inch bands rather than thirties. Okay. And that way it's a more concentrated band of ammonia, so it takes longer for it to break down. Mm -hmm. But then because it takes longer to break down, you have to have another alternative source of nitrogen on the corn planter oh. to feed the crop when it's little. Okay. So we use a pop-up system, and we also use a nitrogen uh, band two inches off the row. Oh, okay. I see. And we used to worry about putting that in the ground with a no-till mm -hmm. opener, but we don't do that anymore because there's adequate research out of uh, Minnesota mm -hmm. that uh, I'm trying to think there's a couple good scientists there that did that work and um, it's still being it's still being conducted by Jeff Vetch who's a research assistant okay and um, he what they did is they looked at all kinds of different starters and then they looked at the placement of those starters mm -hmm. whether it be in the row or two by two or two by zero mm -hmm. so I use two by zero okay so mm -hmm. so that's on the surface, two inches off of the, yep. away from And the, the scientist soil. there that's working on that now is Dan Kaiser, who's a soil fertility specialist oh, okay. in Minnesota. Yeah, okay. And so that's dribbled on? It's just dribbled on that um, we use about seven gallons to the acre. Mm -hmm. So we get at least 20 pounds of nitrogen near the near that seed. And what is the source you're using for that? Is that uh, it's usually 28%. Uh -huh. And then usually ammonium thiosulfate. But this year, I don't know. Uh, fertilizer is so expensive. I don't know if we'll put the thiosulfate in or not. I see. Okay. Um, we are, we're using, uh, actually, AMS is a cheaper source of sulfur this year. Okay. And uh, it's a better buy, so we're going to put 125 pounds of ammonium sulfate on okay. instead of 100. Because we always broadcast 100 pounds of potash and 100 pounds of ammonium sulfate and usually 40 or 50 pounds of DAP. Um, but this year we're not doing the DAP because it's so expensive. Okay. Um, we have enough. That's the other thing with my soil test. So we, we uh, I don't know if we should switch subjects to that right away or. Um, yeah. Why don't we talk about how okay, you handle so we, your nutrients? We, we, we uh, sample every two acres. Okay. Every three to four years we soil sample and we take um, a sample and we then variable rate on our potash before soybeans. Mm -hmm. And we will probably start variable rating phosphorus too. Okay. But my philosophy on fertilizers is that 
I don't like to use the optimum level of the university, which is a lower level of fertility. Okay. I like to use the high mm -hmm. or maybe sometimes very high mm -hmm. because I like to have a fertilizer not reduce. I like the fertilizer not to reduce the risk of my yield. Mm -hmm. And okay. so I look at fertilizer as long as it's not an environmental threat. Mm -hmm. I'm better off to keep my fertilizer tests high. So when I run into a year like this where fertilizers are very expensive, mm -hmm. I keep my soil tests higher. I see. That way I can... I can draw them down if I need to oh. in a year like this. So that's a another one of those holistic farm management decisions. Sure. Now, yeah. if you're renting land, you might not want to do that because mm -hmm. um, you might not want to overbuild the test because you don't know how long you're going to have the farm. But mm -hmm. in all of the farms I have, I pretty much know I'm going to continue farming them. Mm -hmm. And so I, I keep the soil tests up really mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Okay. And so what is the timing that you're doing that broadcast? Um, a lot of farmers put it on in the fall, which would have been a great decision this year, but because it was a little cheaper, but mm -hmm. I'm too worried about nutrient loss. Mm -hmm. So I apply my fertilizers uh, usually in March to early April, I'll go out and spread. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we have, we have been using the co-op spreader, mm -hmm. which is just a eight ton spreader. And we put our own hydraulic motor and, Oh. shaft speed sensor and then we hook it up to the egg leader system to a variable rate oh so for two to twenty five hundred dollars most farmers um, can get into spreading fertilizer on a vrt basis oh. and very inexpensively uh -huh. versus paying eight nine dollars an acre to have it custom done mm -hmm. so that's why i like to keep my soil tests a little higher mm -hmm. and because in no-till for example the soil may or may not warm up as fast as conventional. Mm -hmm. So that's not necessarily bad. It's just that you have to recognize it and prepare for it. Yeah. Because <clears throat> it'll catch up later in the season and can actually help you if you don't lose your nutrients. Yeah. Then on your planter, you're doing, you said the two by zero. With yeah. The, and then you've, you're doing a, a pop-up also. We also have a pop-up. <laughs> and <clears throat> instead of putting it on the seed in the case, uh, unit there's a firming point that's mm -hmm. uh, a cast iron steel piece and we weld a piece of one quarter inch uh, anhydrous tube on it that's mm -hmm. about an inch long okay and then down through the unit we run a plastic tube down into that mm. so it's actually dropping the fertilizer under the seed oh. to try and minimize any impact on the seed interesting learned that from a farmer in illinois that was doing it uh -huh. and then um, and what did you say is, is in your pop-up uh, right now it's just 10.34 oh. and, and so then the anhydrous is also going on at planting? Or? The anhydrous can go on anytime up to planting now. Okay. It used to be we'd put it on a couple weeks ahead because oh. we were afraid if we uh, planted over a seam, we mm -hmm. could hurt the stand on uh -huh. sandier soils. Yeah. On the heavy soils, that wasn't near as big a deal. But now that we use guidance, we could be running two tractors. So now we actually have two big tractors. So... If we wanted, we could be planting and putting anhydrous on on the same day now. I see. And which would reduce our risk of losing it because it would give us two more weeks into the season. I see. Before we apply the nitrogen. So okay, I see. We don't really VRT our nitrogen much except mm. for uh, we change rates on fields. Mm. And then we do a fair amount of studies. For example, a couple of years ago, we did a study on one of our sandier fields where we put out... Um, I think it went from uh, 
60, 80, 100, 120, 140, 160, all the way up to 220 pounds of anhydrous. Oh, wow. And, and then we um, came back and those were 40 foot bands of different rates, uh-huh. each pass. And then we came back and we side dressed 20 feet of each one of those bands with 60 pounds of side dress. Oh, okay. To see what would happen if, and then we had a zero rate too. Uh-huh. So we could see if side dressing paid. Mm-hmm. Well, on our farm, even on our sandiest ground, we do better with anhydrous. Oh. Um, and uh, putting it on at a, I'd say probably 160 to 180, well, not quite that much anhydrous, but a, around 180 to 200 pounds of nitrogen total. Oh, okay. Now that might be higher than uh, Martin, which is the university recommendation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then to me, it's all, the rate per acre is really got, have to be equated back to the yield per acre. Mm-hmm. So the, the, our high, even at our highest yields, our, our nitrogen use efficiency was higher. Mm-hmm. So even though we exceeded the Martin rate, I see. we were losing less nitrogen because of the efficiency of the yield. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so what sort of yields were you seeing then? Uh, we got up to 230 bushels on okay. that sandy loam soil. Oh, oh, wow. So... And it was, you know, we had plenty of moisture that year, so it was a good mm-hmm. year. And that plant, that field was only planted at, uh, two hundred, I think, twenty six to 27,000 plants. Oh, okay. So that's the other thing we've learned with precision ag is that we don't need to overplant our fields. Mm-hmm. We're actually better off on our lighter soils to underplant, or not mm-hmm. underplant, but plant them at a, a lighter population because mm-hmm. if we get into dry weather, we don't, hurt the crop. So we have to have a flexier hybrid, but we're better off planting 26, 28,000. We get more corn. Uh-huh. Okay. Interesting. Um, a lot of people talk about banding instead of broadcast, mm-hmm. but you are not in favor of banding. Well, uh, we tried banding. We actually built a banding machine and we uh-huh. banded our fertilizer and planted over it. We didn't see a big response. Okay. But then again, you know, just because I did that one experiment, I always like tell farmers this, that, you know, just because there's a research trial out there that says this works, Mm -hmm. the crop production is like a chain. Every link counts. Mm -hmm. So if one of your links is a little different than the Mm -hmm. other one, it might not be the same for you. Uh So I know some very successful farmers south of here in the Viroqua area that they deep band uh, urea. Uh and all their other nutrients and they do well. Uh-huh. So they're they're strip tilling in the spring on heavier clay soils. Okay. And the heavier clay probably holds that urea very well. Mm-hmm. But on my sandy loams, that might not be the case. Oh, okay, yeah. So we still use NSERV even in the spring. Oh, okay, uh-huh, gotcha. And so what we're trying to do is hold on to that nitrogen as long as possible, the mm-hmm. big load of nitrogen. And then the rest, we put on that uh, ammonium sulfate Mm-hmm. So uh, we're putting on, uh, I'm, I'm trying to recall what that analysis is right now, but somewhere around 30 to 40 pounds of nitrogen is applied at planting or just before. So, right. and then the anhydrous makes the balance up. You mentioned hybrids. Yeah. So what are what are you thinking there? I mean, you... Sound... So usually I plant about four hybrids. Uh-huh. And generally I don't switch... I'll usually use at least 50 to 60% of my production will be proven hybrids. Okay. They might not be the highest yielders mm-hmm. every year, but they're, I don't have to worry about them. Okay. And then I will plant in maybe 30% of a new hybrid. Okay. Um, and um, 
Although this year with tar spot, mm -hmm. I'm switching a lot more because a couple, for some reason, <clears throat> the uh, the Monsanto DeKalb hybrids I had this year just, and I wouldn't say that would necessarily be true all over the country, but the ones that they have in this area, mm -hmm. um, they just got hammered with tar oh. spot. Oh yeah, okay. And yeah. Uh, um, normally I would plant tons of DeKalb and cropland and plant some pioneer, but um, this year I'm planting a lot of Dairyland corn actually, oh, which okay. is a uh, similar genetics to pioneer. It's from Corteva ah, okay. because those hybrids really yielded well and they've yielded well for several years now. And ah. they had, they had a good resist. I don't know if tar spot will be near the issue it was last year. It just mm -hmm. depends if we have similar weather or not. So you've been doing this for a long time and there was a huge uh, uptake of no-till for a while, but it kind of seems like it's slowed down a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think there's a big push anymore. It's because uh, for a while there were a lot of people like myself mm -hmm. and a lot of agronomists that um, helped with these. Uh, you know, you can go back to Ohio. There was tons of that too, where mm -hmm. there were these groups that yeah. worked on it. Yeah. Same with cover crops. I think mm -hmm. there's groups working on it. So. In order to initiate it again, we have to start those kind of groups again. Mm -hmm. But we have to have a different approach mm -hmm. in that I think we the way we would do it is most of these great big farms have guidance and tillage equipment and mm -hmm. stuff. We need to have uh, some great big planters put together mm -hmm. that can go out and no-till for them mm -hmm. so they can try it. Mm -hmm. okay. So it doesn't screw up their whole routine. It's something easy they can bring in. That's what we used to do. We'd have, uh, we had no-till drills that... Uh, County Conservation Department owned. Uh-huh. Or we do, uh, I'd go out and plant for a lot of farmers. I'd uh -huh. go plant some no-till for them. Oh, you would? Oh, yeah, okay. and other farmers would do the same. Yeah. So they didn't have to invest in so, because it's really important to have the right equipment to get it to work. Mm -hmm. And to right. figure out how to get it in their system. So I think that's part of the problem is we don't really have uh, initiatives to help them start again. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. And these large farmers are so um driven on their calendar and time yeah they just don't have time to mess around i see so that's interesting <clears throat> i hadn't thought of it that way so basically the they're too big piece. to they're ba basically too big to switch yeah and they, they they can't um unless they're proven that it's risk-free yeah mm -hmm. they're not gonna do it uh -huh. i mean they got too much investment yeah. i mean like this year well you got five six hundred bucks an acre invested in an acre corn uh-huh Oh, sure. So right. that's um, that's four dollar corn at one hundred and fifty break even. So mm -hmm. if you had a bad year and you got one hundred and fifty bushel, mm -hmm. which isn't normal for a good producer, you know they're up around two hundred. But mm -hmm. if the price came down mm -hmm. two years ago, it was two ninety nine in the summer. Mm -hmm. Right. So they can't risk they can't risk losing twenty thirty bushel. Mm -hmm. That's the other reason farmers don't back off on nitrogen. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're farming, that's the last mm -hmm. thing you'd want to do is back off on nitrogen. I see. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Even though everybody says we're contaminating, uh, we're causing all the problem in the in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. I think that's more caused by the source of nitrogen now. Oh. Because we've got everybody convinced to go to um, side dressing, so we're using 28. Mm -hmm. And so we end up putting on a lot of nitrogen or urea in situations where it leaches and then we have to come back. Oh, okay. Because hmm. we're putting on a nitrogen source that's less stable. Oh, okay. But I see. if you go out west in the Dakotas where my son works with the interrogators and rogators, which he works with, um, 
I can see why they do it because they can't cover all those acres. Mm. It'd take them forever with an anhydrous bar. Oh, because that has to go slowly? Yeah. Oh. So now with the new guidance systems and the uh, the new interrogators and the John Deere and Case are into that now too, they have steering systems on them. They can go out and spread fertilizer several times mm. in a row mm-hmm. crop mm-hmm. without wrecking the crop. Mm-hmm. So there'd be some fields that would be applicable to, but others wouldn't be because you wouldn't know if you could get back in the field. Mm-hmm. If it would be too muddy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just an easy decision about nitrogen. It's all about whether you can actually implement what you want to do. Uh-huh. Gotcha. So they'll go out and they'll broadcast it on. And, you know, and there again, that's where the irrigator is a good deal because you can mm-hmm. always get your nitrogen on mm-hmm. later on yeah. if you don't get the irrigator stuck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that happens too, I guess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know a lot of Nebraska farmers, but I've talked to some that say, you know, once in a while that can be an issue. Oh, okay. Oh. If you get a lot of rain yeah. and it's too muddy, they can't, they'll get stuck. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so anyhow, um, I think a lot... Uh, we need to be careful how we regulate nitrogen. Uh-huh. And if guy isn't getting a good yield, yeah, he should be backing off. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, if, if they're really good farmers, they need a lot of nitrogen. Mm-hmm. I see. Mm-hmm. So we should be looking at, and that's why you see a lot of, uh, you see the four R's for nutrient management, you know, the right rate, right place, right time. And I don't mm-hmm. know, not off the top of my head, the last one, but... Right source. Any, source, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> sort, and that's the most important uh-huh. because the source... Um, so, the, these nitrogen equations are just based on one rate. This is the effective rate for nitrogen. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a bunch of baloney because it's all about when you put it on mm-hmm. and how you, close you get it to the plant so it's used efficiently and then... Mm-hmm. You know, the, so that it should change based mm-hmm. on what you're using. Mm-hmm. So you can't just come out with this broad statement that farmers should use X pounds of nitrogen. You should have a better way of doing that. Yeah. We do, but we don't do it. So I, I'm really a huge believer in on-farm testing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a, a believer in university testing, but you also have to, uh, that can give you basic results on mm-hmm. a particular type of soil. but. Mm-hmm. In order to really know if it works, you have to do it on your own farm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the best way. Yeah. So if you're going to jump in the precision um, agriculture, you should, uh, you know, have good monitors and have as many devices to control rates as you can, mm-hmm. so that you can do those tests very easily uh-huh. on your own farm. Okay. And so you had talked about ammonia being a more stable nitrogen source yeah so what do you mean by that well because ammonia is ammonium mm-hmm. it has to be trans uh, has to go conversion in the soil with the bacteria to to nitrate mm-hmm. and then to nitrite before mm-hmm. it's leachable I see and so if you put NSERV on it what it does is the NSERV acidifies the soil around the mm. the anhydrous longer so mm. that it takes longer for the bacteria to move back in and convert that ammonia to nitrate um. Okay, I see. Whereas urea is, you know, um, those are half and half. Mm-hmm. And so they're already half converted. Mm-hmm. And so they're at more risk. Mm-hmm. Now, if you put them on right and don't put on too much at a time, mm-hmm. then you're fine. Mm-hmm. And if your soil, if you have real heavy soil, it's not as big an issue. But on mm-hmm. sandy soils, mm-hmm. there's not as much organic matter to hold the nitrogen. Mm-hmm. 
And so then you have loss. Mm -hmm. And so when you say <clears throat> if you put it on right, what, is, what does that mean? Well, because we're putting on a, as much nitrogen as we can that is in a more stable form. The mm -hmm. other thing with 40 inch bands, we mm -hmm. sure you're gonna have an area around the band mm -hmm. that's gonna kill your bacteria, but relative to the whole mm -hmm. um, area of the field, it's pretty nominal. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's concentrated. Right, okay. Now I know some 30 inch growers, a really good farmer by Mostyn here that um, he's not totally no-till, but he, um, I think he uses like a turbo-till or something. Mm. But he puts his nitrogen right under the row. Oh. So he's he's putting it on in the fall with end serve, uh -huh. and then he plants right on that seam. I see. In mm -hmm. the old days, that'd be dangerous, but I think maybe he's an inch or two off. And by then, his soils are heavy enough that this, the nitrogen's probably bound up. And, okay. Because with sandy soils, it's not so much the leaching that happens with ammonia, it's, it vents up through where the knife went. Mm. And that's how it kills this, the plant oh. when it's germinating because the venting of the nitrogen mm. uh, is actually toxic to the seedling. So what is the biggest issue that people have, do you think, when they're, when they're switching to no-till? I think the weeds are one. Uh, I think a lot of it's just getting the seed in the ground at the right depth. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And getting getting a, a good stand. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and that has all to do with the equipment, you think? Uh, some to the equipment, but you know the the RTK can help you, but mm -hmm. the operator. Okay. To get off the tractor and go look. Uh huh. Okay. And probably seeding deeper rather than shallower is. Mm -hmm. is less risky yeah in the old days you used to think about planting too deep uh -huh. you get a crust when you work the soil but with no-till you don't get crusting i see what you're saying so you're better off to plant it deeper to make sure you're getting it in the ground mm -hmm. in other words get out of the, you know you really need to get out and assess your stands a lot when you after you plant them everybody should do that you can learn a lot from digging seed and seeing how deep it was and oh. if it's uniform and then you get better at running your planter that way Thanks to Jim Leverage for sharing some of his insights from a lifetime of learning about no-till. The full transcript of this podcast and other no-till farmer podcasts is available at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. To get more from Jim, check out our online exclusive Ask the Operator feature, where Jim fields questions about no-till from readers. The questions and his answers are available at notillfarmer.com slash asktheoperator. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Source by Sound Agriculture, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. You can keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.